And one of the characteristics of the church that Jesus is building that, that I'm, I'm firmly convinced and, con, and uh, committed to is that it's a church that believes in and practices and is effective at praying for the sick. Praying for people that are hurting and broken in any sense of the word. Uh, it's, you, you can't take the New Testament and read it and not see that and not see that that's supposed to be normal in a way that, that it isn't normal most anywhere. So what I want to give you today is a refresher course in healing. And you think, can you really do that? And I could, I, I could do it in like four or five hours. I'm actually not going to do it in four or five hours. A couple of you like gave me the look just then, that moment. No, John. Uh, it's, it, it, there's actually just a couple of points I want to make about what praying for the sick is all about and how normal it can actually be and how effective people can actually be. Uh, that I, want to, I want to draw from a passage in uh, Mark chapter 5. So if you have a Bible with you, open it to Mark chapter 5. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to convince you that it's supposed to be normal for the church to believe in, pray for and be effective at praying for the sick. I, I, I'm just not going to do that. We, that. There's lots of other times we've talked about that. But what I want to do today is highlight the fact that, one of the, that, that doing this consistently is one of the biggest challenges that, that any church faces. Just praying for people is challenging. Just, believe, well, let me take it back. just believing in it is challenging because a lot of churches don't believe in it. Actually doing it is challenges because most churches don't do it. And then becoming effective at it is really challenging because hardly anybody is really that effective at it. But we've been effective at it in the past, and I would say we're not as effective. And so it's, I think it's time to, to get a little refresher course. So we're going to look at the story of two people who had significant needs for healing and how their story offers us something that we could take away and actually apply to our lives and, and I believe, begin to, to become more effective at what we, we say we already believe in. So let's read Mark chapter 5. We're going to start verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter's dying. Please, come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And in Luke it says, almost crushing him. So if you can just put yourself in this picture... Jesus has just got off a boat, and people are waiting for him, thousands of people. He, he attracted crowds like it's hard to imagine. This man comes up who's a synagogue ruler, you know, a notable person in the community, and Jesus says, yeah, I'll go with you, and these crowds go with Jesus. And they're just pressing around him. You know, they're going into these villages. So imagine a, a village, a, a small town, and, and thousands and thousands of people are walking up to it, and they're walking through the streets, and they're just crunching together, and they're trying to go to Jairus' house. And, and it's just like a mob scene. It's like it would probably be close to what it would be like. Uh, we actually had this happen once. But, and, and we, were, we, had, we used to have two services, two full services. 
at, at the end of the first service, the, the building was full, but it was raining like cats and dogs outside. I mean, it was raining harder than you can imagine. It hurt. That's how hard it was raining. So the service was over, and everyone's kind of milling around, waiting for a break in the rain. And they kept waiting and waiting, and it got to be about 11 o'clock. And, and the parking lot is starting to fill up more. And people are parking in the grass, and, and everyone's starting to come in. And at that point, lightning hits our building. Yeah, just boom. And all the lights go off, the alarms go off, and, and, and people <laughs> run to the front door. And they stop, right? And, and it's kind of like, people are pushing against it. People are stuck against the door. Nobody wants to go outside. It's lightning. And someone was pulling up. So they pulled up to the church, and lightning went. Several bolts of lightning hit the building. Boom, boom, boom. So everybody's inside. Everybody kind of calms down. The lights come back on. And two people were praying in the, in the uh, utility room for the service. And they're praying, and, and, and at a certain point, they're kind of enthusiastic prayers, and they're standing right by the panel of lectured boards, and they're praying, and they say, oh, God, we pray. This literally happened. They said, we pray that you'd send your power. Lightning hit the building. These sparks blow out of the electric board and fall on them, and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Joanne Sage Tina Rossi, you, you guys can ask them the story, and they're going, did we know what we were praying for? <laughs> you know, the alarms are going off in the building, eh, eh, and the lights are going off, emergency lights, and, and so finally it calms down, well, we got to make sure the building's safe to be in, so we're kind of waiting, and uh, several of us have to climb up in the attic, all the way along the attic to make sure there's no fire up there, because we're all in the building and nobody wants to leave, because it's lightning outside, you know, it's like a, a movie. And uh, I kind of lost track of where that was fitting into the story. But it was a crush of people like you've never seen before. The building, people were just packed all the way down the halls, all the way in the lobby, all the way in here, all the way in the little entryway there, and just crunched together. That was what it was like for Jesus. And there's a woman there, it says, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd. So this poor lady you know, works her way through the crowd, comes up behind Jesus, and she says to herself, uh, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, Who touched me? Who didn't touch you? You know, somebody probably pickpocketed you. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. And some translations say saved you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. 
He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Sorry, I lost my place here. Uh, when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? Uh, looking for something. Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. He put them all out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic, means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So, there's two people in this story. It's pretty simple. And both of them faced an untreatable illness. Now, you may look at this and say, it's, didn't it say they got healed immediately? I mean, that doesn't seem like they had any trouble with healing. How could, how could a, a, a total success story teach me anything? You know, when I try to pray for the sick, it's like I'm a total failure story time after time. Well, yeah, I think you have to look closer. If, if, you, if you read it that way, I don't think you're reading it very carefully. And so... They both faced untreatable illness. Both of them were suffering profoundly. One of them, his daughter, is about to die. And in cultures where they face death, you know, day in and day out, they know when someone's about to die. I've been in the hospital many times with families, and, and they'll be told by doctors and nurses, you know, your, your dad, your brother, your child, you know, is, is, is probably going to die. And you need to get them ready for hospice. And the, and the people, they look at their loved one, and they, they, just, they, look, they look sick, but they don't look like that. But people who are around, people who have died, they know. They recognize it. They can see it. It happened to me with my dad. And this guy knew my daughter's close to death. This wasn't just some irrational fear. His daughter was dying. They, they, he'd seen it before. And the woman's illness, now this is the sad thing about this poor woman, her illness because she had this issue, this hemorrhage of blood, it made her, because of, of, of ritual laws that, that the Jewish people followed, it made her a social outcast, because the fact that she had, if you, if you have any kind of a, an imperfection in your body, let's just say, like this, it would make you ritually unclean. And if you had contact with anyone, they would become unclean, and they couldn't go to the temple and offer sacrifices. They had to, to stay away from other people. And I, I'm not going to get into all the rationale behind this. It, wasn't, it, it actually made some sense. It, it, it was an idea of ancient quarantine. And so this woman was a social outcast. She couldn't go to the temple. She was a spiritual outcast. No one would marry her. Or if she was married and this happened, she could be divorced because you were told not to have sexual intercourse with someone who had an issue of blood like this, which would make her divorce material. And on top of that, it said that she spent everything she had trying to get help from the physicians. Didn't help her. She only got worse. And so on top of that, she, she was probably hopeless. And so she comes to Jesus. And they both came. Now think about this. They both came as a last resort. The synagogue rulers, if you read carefully all the way through the New Testament, they were hostile to Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't like what he taught. He wasn't welcomed in the synagogues. I mean, he was Jewish, so he was allowed in. 
but he was a troublemaker. The synagogue leaders were the ones that were giving him the most grief. The teachers and religious leaders were the ones who were most antagonistic to Jesus. So Jesus was this guy's last resort. You can imagine the pride he had to swallow to go to Jesus. Secondly, this woman, being a person who is, is ritually unclean, knowing anybody she touches is unclean, she's basically saying, I know Jesus can heal me, and if I make him unclean, well, you know, I, I, tough. Uh, you know, she was a little selfish about it. Plus, she had a little bit of magical thinking. There wasn't any uh, sense of God in this. It was like, if I just touch his clothes, something will happen. And that was kind of a common uh, view of, of miracles and healing that was in the pagan world. So, th- these people don't have what, what we would think was perfect faith, do they? And I, I think that's why it makes them a good case study for us. Can you see yourself in their story in some way? Like, my faith isn't... If whatever you think perfect faith is, it, it, it doesn't look like what you think. But it's, everybody has imperfect faith. These people have imperfect faith. Now, did this stop them from experiencing healing through Jesus? Did their imperfect faith personally apply it, does your imperfect faith have to stop you from receiving healing from Jesus? It didn't stop them. And surprisingly, most of the stories, if you read carefully in the New Testament, they're stories of people with imperfect faith. And there's, there's one, one key about faith that's, that we'll, I'll touch on in a second that, that is important. So now these two, these two people also represent our challenge. Because I don't want to overgeneralized, but people tend to be in two categories about faith. One category I want to call, they're people that have outsider faith. They're outsider people, and they have this kind of outsider faith. Then there's insider people with an insider faith. The synagogue ruler was an insider person. He was part of the faith community. This woman was outside the faith community. She was an outsider. And, and, and let me give you some observations over the years of interacting with tens of thousands of people and, and unchurched people, church people, prayers, praying for people in every kind of venue and situation like some others of you have done. People who are outside the community of faith, it's really interesting how they seem to be able to believe that God will heal them more easily than people who are in the church. I don't know how to explain it. I'm just, it's an observation. I mean, Jay and Maggie, the Cokers, all the folks who used to do our ministry down with the homeless shelter for years and years, what, 13 years? Every Thursday night, we'd cook for all the women in, the, in uh, Rebecca's house. We couldn't even, we can't keep up with all the people that got healed down there. I mean, healed of significant things. And many of them were outsider people, outside the faith. Just like this woman. And... The challenge, though, the reason why Jesus said to her, uh, who touched me, was the challenge for her faith, even though she had faith for healing, she didn't still get the whole picture because what God doesn't want is he just doesn't want your body well. He wants all of you well. And people who are outside, the challenge to their faith is embracing saving faith to become a follower of Jesus. And not just use Jesus for comfort or help, but actually 
Commit your life to follow him and walk with him. And you'll see Jesus often in the Gospels pray for someone and they're healed. Like in the Gospel of John, he prays for a man, he's healed, and then Jesus slips off because he's blind. The man's blind that was healed, and Jesus slips off in the crowd. And the man, there's a lot of controversy around his healing. And the people say, who healed you? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> in, the, you know in all the commotion, I didn't get to ask his name. He was like the masked healer. And, and he slipped away in the crowd. And later on, it says Jesus found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's, you know, do you believe in the Messiah? And, and the man said, who is he? And I'll believe him. And he said, that's ah, me. See, it wasn't enough just to get healed. And, and he had this conversation several times with people where he would heal them, and then he would press them further about them putting their faith in him and surrendering their whole lives to him. And, and going from an outsider who kind of has this secondhand relationship with God. Like, I know God's good. God's here. God's, God's the big guy in the sky. You know, like, the, uh, like Crocodile Dundee. Uh, it's an old movie film reference. So he said, me and God, we're mates, you know. And I'm chasing women, and I'm, you know, drinking and killing people and cheating and, you know, doing all these things. But me and God are mates. And I don't mean you have to be perfect, but he's an example, that character. And a lot of people, a lot of times people, that character resonates with a lot of people because they know God's really real, but they don't have any way to connect with him. And on some level, they want to connect with him that way because he's asking something of them. And so that's why Jesus draws this woman aside. And he says the second time, your faith has healed you. After she talks to him, she falls at his feet. There's, there's this point, there's this threshold she crosses over. And the, the text doesn't elaborate on the dialogue that they had. But when Jesus said, your faith has saved you, go in peace, that was, a, that was in a sense a benediction to him saying, you're forgiven. You know, you've chosen well. You have fo- you're following me now. You know, you, you entered into life. And then the, the, if, if you find yourself in that place, because maybe you're here and you find yourself in that place, that's kind of where your faith is at. You believe in God. You think God's good. He's your father. God does good things for you. You pray when you need relief. You pray when you need comfort. You pray when you need help. But you don't have a relationship with him. I, I, later on, I'll give you a chance just to invite him into your life and, and experience that. Then there's the challenges of the insider faith, and this is the people like the synagogue ruler, people like most of us here at the Vineyard, and we find it hard, just like he did in that story, to continue to believe when things are hard to believe. And it's hard to believe, for example, when we pray and nothing happens. Now, remember the, the father, he's, he's, he's encouraged, Jesus is going with me to pray for my daughter, she's sick, but I know she's really sick. And then the news comes back, she's dead, don't bother to trouble the teacher anymore. And you know, he kind of like, he gives up. And Jesus urges him. See, look at the passage, he says, he says, uh, ignoring what those people said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just keep believing. Because fear is a choice. There is an emotion of fear, but fear is a choice that we make. That's why Jesus said, don't be afraid. 
We can actually say, choose to say, I'm not going to be afraid. We can acknowledge our emotions, but we can choose to say, based on what I know, I know how to believe and trust God. I have to press through this fear that I'm experiencing. It's real. You don't deny it's there, but you don't let it control your life. Fear is not a trump card that gets the last word. If you believe in Jesus, it's not. And this man was feeling that. He was in this, the crush of that moment where it's hard to believe. He had already prayed and nothing had happened. He had prayed, like many of us have, and things got worse. And it's hard, to, it's hard to keep believing. It's hard to pray. It's hard to pray for the sick. When people tell you to stop praying, you know, you're foolish. They mock you or they dismiss you, or whatever people do sometimes when you want to pray for people. So Jesus says, keep on believing. Now, here's the thing. I want to make this point, because this is, I think this is really relevant to us. We're, we're insiders. Our, the vineyard is full of insiders. Being an insider, this challenge is an occupational hazard that your faith tends to, like a fire, diminish. Uh, People say, like, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you leak. Our faith just doesn't maintain itself. It doesn't sustain at some level of thriving without energy being put into it, appropriate kind of energy. It just doesn't. And, pr- and the faith to pray for the sick is something that's challenging to sustain. Now, I want to give you some examples. Uh, two from the Bible and then one in real life of of the fact that, that this, this thing that we're experiencing is very common. How many of you guys know John the Baptist in the Bible, right? John the Baptist, when he was born, he was the first person who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he was in his mother's womb. He was, a, he was the forerunner for everybody who's a person of faith. I mean... <laughs> His life was, was a life of significance, even though he was kind of a strange dude. And he was on fire, and he was such a dynamic person. The message, he preached a pretty challenging message, but he was preaching it to people who were religiously indifferent. They were, they were, they were very successful. The, the time in Israel was, we've said this before, around the time of Jesus, it was a time where there was great prosperity, there was great inequality, but there was, always, there was also great religious form, formalism and not much fire, not much life. And John the Baptist came along, he started preaching, and he decided that he would plant his church out in the worst place in Israel, out in the wilderness, right next to the Dead Sea, right? I mean, the, the old real estate adage, location, 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 was not typically uh, what he consulted, because he went where nobody wanted to go. And yet, thousands of people thronged out to see him because he was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was the first one to recognize who Jesus was. God said to him, the one that you see the Spirit coming down on, that's the Messiah. He saw the Spirit. He saw what nobody else could see. This guy was full of faith. He was full of life. He was full of the Spirit. And yet at a certain point in his life, when he got put in prison, he doubted Jesus. And Jesus had to send some of his disciples to encourage him. And you saw his faith starting to struggle. And if you go on, you can see some of his disciples are mentioned later on in the book of Acts. 
about 20, 25 years after the time of Jesus and John the Baptist, Paul was, was going to the city of Ephesus and he found some disciples, some followers of Jesus there. And he asked them, you know, who are you? And they said, we're John's disciples. And here's what he asked them. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Anybody remember what they said? Yeah, who's the Holy Spirit? These were John the Baptist's disciples, and they're going, who's the Holy Spirit? Do you see what can happen? It's, it's, everything operates by natural laws, spiritual or, or, or natural. And the law of entropy is a law that says everything, every system tends to disorder. The fall has introduced this, this law into the world where things fall apart. If, if, you, if you could time-lapse photograph this little wooden pulpit, this podium, and put it up here, in over hundreds of years, you would watch it age and dry, and it would just slowly decay, and then it would be gone if you watched it long enough. That's an entropy. John the Baptist going from full of the Spirit to full of doubt to his disciples don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. That's entropy. That's spiritual entropy. That's what's working in your life. It's what's working in my life. It's what's working among us. Do you, do you feel it? Do you get it? And when we start talking about praying for the sick, entropy is at work there. Uh, Paul warned in 2 Timothy, he said in the last days, difficult times are going to come. Now, we're in the last days. The last days started uh, in at the day of Pentecost. Jesus brought the last days. The last days have been going on for 2,000 years. They're not just the last few years before Christ returns. That's, that's theologically an error. I know that's a lot of last days teaching today. Is everyone's focused on the last. But that's not the, the focus of the Bible. Eschatology is about the kingdom breaking into the world through Jesus. It's not just the last dramatic times. All the times are dramatic. From, from, from the day of Jesus till the first coming to his second coming. But what Paul said was, in the last days, difficult times will come because people are going to hold to a form of godliness, but they're going to deny its power, its dunamis. And the word dunamis is what Paul, I mean, what uh, Luke said, what he, he recorded Jesus' words to his disciples. He said, before you go on my mission, I want you to wait until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. When he comes on you, you will receive dunamis. And he, and he shows them, Luke goes on to show them in the book of Acts, over and over and over being filled and refilled with that dunamis. But what inevitably happens always in our faith is we go from godliness and power to a form of godliness without power. Because here's what power takes. Power takes emptying yourself, yielding, waiting, surrendering, not my will, but your will, until we see the power come. You can't pull power out of your pocket and just go, oh, I got a power coin I'm going to use. It just doesn't work that way. The disciples' first experience of it was at the day of Pentecost, and they'd waited for days, praying constantly, God, send your promised power, waiting and waiting, and then boom, the power came. And so that waiting, you can see that waiting in this story, because here's, here's how the story starts. Jesus comes on the scene, Jairus comes and, and begs him, come to my house. 
Jesus is making his way there. Jairus is probably behind him saying, hurry, Jesus, hurry. My, my daughter's really sick. Come on. And then Jesus pauses to have this conversation with this woman in the crowd. And I'm sure Jairus is going, what is he doing? What is he doing? But here's what Jesus knew. I'm going to follow God's pace. I'm waiting on God's word. And, and something just happened here. And I have to follow my father's leading. And he has this interaction with this dear woman, turns her life around. And then at that moment, and Jesus has got, Jesus, if you read the gospels, you get the sense of Jesus just going through life, never hurrying. He just had this pace. I'm just doing what God wants me to do. I'm not sweating everything else because I, I can only do what the father wants me to do. That's all I'm supposed to be focused on. Not a good American. Clearly, he doesn't follow our pace, doesn't follow our sense of priority at all. He talks to this woman. He sees the father's doing something. He's waiting. Then he tells the guy, just keep believing. Persevere. Then he follows him to his house, and it's just all this commotion, and there's no faith there at all. There's mourning and grief, and there's unbelief. And I don't mean that... that Grief and mourning are unbelief. They're not. They're just human emotions. But there was unbelief there too. Because Jesus says she's not dead. She's just asleep. In other words, she, she's not finally called. Her life is not finally called back to the Father. She's just asleep. And Paul said, we fall asleep in Christ. And we're going to rise again. And they all laugh at him. You're crazy, you know. That's why we don't welcome you in our synagogue. Talk like that. And then Jesus, you know, kind of runs them all out of the house. And he gets mom and dad and three of his disciples. He goes into there. And you're not supposed to, again, you're not supposed to touch a dead person. You're not supposed to touch a person who has an issue of blood because you become unclean. In both these situations, Jesus didn't become unclean. He took their uncleanness away. If you touch a dead body, you were unclean for seven days. It was the, it was the, the, the worst sort of sentence against you. He went over to the girl. He takes her hand and he says, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Get up. He commanded her. He didn't pray a prayer. He commanded her, get up. And she wakes up, boom. Now, you know, a couple of months ago, I, I read you a story about a guy. There's, there, are res, there are resurrections from the dead going on all over the world. Contemporary resurrections from the dead. They're happening all over the world. This little girl came to life. Uh, he said, give her something to eat. And the, everyone's just, oh my gosh, you know, this is like life-changing moment. And Jesus didn't capitalize on this moment. He said, don't tell anybody what happened here. Do you understand? He wasn't trying to grandstand, surprisingly. Let me tell you something. My Facebook, my Facebook post would have blown up five minutes after I walked out of that guy's house if I'd done that. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus wanted. And I know plenty of people who miracles like that happen all, just consistently through their life, and they don't talk about it. Because you don't always have to talk about it. You're not always supposed to tell everybody what you just, you just did. That's the temptation. So a, a, another guy I know was on a, a recently, uh, give you an example. So it's not, just, it's not just John the Baptist. It's not just Paul warning us. Here's, here's a reality for us as a church. 
One of my friends was on a webinar, an acquaintance was on a webinar, and uh, it was uh, a leader of the vineyard up in Canada, and the webinar was uh, about being naturally supernatural. It was about how to do kingdom ministry, and there are several hundred people on the webinar, and at a certain point, they took a, a, a poll, and on the poll, you could, you know, check off uh, different answers to questions, and, and basically, one of the things that they asked was, of the, you know, several hundred people, how many of you... Uh, are still praying for the sick regularly. Now, these are all people who are part of the vineyard. These are all people who know where the vineyard's been for years and years and years, like other movements like ours, you know, third wave kingdom movements. We believe in doing the stuff. And only about half of them were still praying for the sick. And he said, how many of you prayed for the sick in the last year? And only about half of them had even prayed for one person in the last year. Then he asked a further question, follow-up. Well, how many of you regularly pray and it was only about 10% regularly pray. Then he asked another question. How many of you regularly pray for the sick and are seeing people healed? And it was only four, five, six people. It's, it's just the way things are. But they don't have to be that way. They don't have to be that way. That's not supposed to be our takeaway that, yeah, life sucks and then you die. And, you know, it's great that you saw healing once, but, you know, just get used to the fact that you're never going to see that again. That was, the, that was in the old days. That's not God's will. The church that Jesus is building believes in, practices, and is effective at praying for the sick because Jesus was that way. And Jesus is still with us. He's still here. He's still doing this. So this is our story, too. I can, I can say that. This is our story in our vineyard. And I can say, because I still keep trying to do it, I pray for the sick constantly, and I still see people get healed every week. But it's not easy. It's an uphill battle to pray for people. Rick's not here today because he's sick, and I prayed for him. He has this really bad sinus, uh, sinus infection, and I prayed for him seven times. <laughs> he didn't get better. And, in fact, he got worse. He's home. He's sick. He didn't want to even get out of bed today. And, yeah, Jay got sick this week. Maggie got sick this week. I've had a headache for four days. I never get headaches. I mean, I just never get headaches. I've had a throbbing headache, like, boom, like, you know, the kind that you feel your heart beat, boom. I never get those. It's all because I'm stinking teaching about healing. <laughs> it's like, you're going to teach about healing? I'm going to make all of you sick. There's, there's a warfare aspect to this, too. And we can't be timid about it. So, let's wind up. Three things you can do. Uh, you can, this is something, the three things you can take away from this story. It's really easy. It's really straightforward. Then we're going to pray for people. So, we're going to finish doing that. We can live with confidence that Jesus carries God's power to heal. Any kind of illness that anybody has. That's what this story says. The two examples of incurable, intractable illnesses that were getting worse, and they were healed. And I want to ask you to, as I talk about this, I want to add, just pause for a second. I want to ask you to kind of register something inside you. I want you to take your own emotional temperature as I talk about this. I want you to ask yourself, what do I feel inside as, as John's talking about this? Do I 
feel like I'm anxious? Do I feel afraid? Do I feel sarcastic? Do I feel judgmental? Do I, do I feel doubtful? Do I feel excited? Do I feel hopeful? Do I feel critical? Or, or, or you know, it could be 10 other feelings that you have inside. I want you to pay attention to those. Because some of those are going to present roadblocks and obstacles for you as you move forward to participate in doing whatever we're going to do here in a couple of minutes. And if you ignore them, they will keep presenting themselves as roadblocks for you to believe and practice and become effective at praying for the sick. Because it's my conviction, and it's a conviction that I have that's proven to be true for 30 plus years. Anybody that wants to believe in and pray for can become effective at praying for sick people. Anybody. Anybody. Not only the Vineyard Movement, Bethel. There's so many movements now that have, that have been sparked to, to mobilize people to pray for the sick. And everybody has the same experience and testimony that anybody can do this. But you have to recognize that there, there's internal challenges to you do it, and there's external challenges. And then there's longitudinal challenges over time that will present themselves. That I, I've tried to point a couple out. But the first one, we will never do it unless we begin to live with confidence that Jesus carries God's power. Jesus alone carries God's power to heal anything of anybody. And that the ways that he heals are so varied This woman just touched him. He didn't even know someone had a need. Now, God knows our needs, but I'm just showing you. There are times where Jesus made mud and rubbed it on someone's eye. There are times where he commanded them. There are times where he anointed them with oil. There are times where he uh, cast out a demon and the person, uh, their back was healed. I mean, there are so many methods of healing. There isn't. That, that what you have to conclude is there is no method to healing. And that's my next point is the, if we have to believe that Jesus can heal anybody of anything, but we have to begin to learn how to wait on God to show us how he wants to work in that moment. Because Jesus applied two different kinds of methods of healing in this one story. And I've mentioned to you before, there's just a whole range of ways that Jesus does it. There was one time where Jesus spit on a guy's tongue who couldn't speak. Now, I'm going to be real truthful with you. If I heard the Lord say that, that would be a very difficult one for me to go along with, right? At least in American culture. You know, there are other cultures in different parts of the world where, you know, they just have different kind of uh, social conventions than we have, but that one would be hard for me. If someone, you know, if I had some problem, someone said, I think I'm supposed to spit on my hand and, and put it on your tongue. I'm going, you what? <laughs> you what? And you, that would come into your mind and you would think there's no way that's God. But if you read the gospels, you'll see all these crazy, wild, unique things you see in the old Testament. They would say, go, go dip in a river seven times. Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest. I mean, there's all these different ways. And that's the waiting part. Now, here, This is a challenge when we're praying for the sick is, when you're standing with someone who's sick, you feel anxious. 
The pressure is on. Your hands are sweating. Your tongue swells up. You, you can't remember your name. That's the anointing. That's God. And you have to resist the urge to just, just speak you know, anxiously, just pray. If I just fill the air with words, something may happen, right? It's like a shotgun. Just, just send pellets of prayer up there and maybe something will happen. Don't. Just dial. John Wimber used to tell us, it dial down. And I came from a, 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 I got saved in the Jesus movement in a Pentecostal environment where we dialed up, you know. We put on the, the turbo boosters and we figured you get worked up to get God to come down. And, and I'm not I'm mocking that because, I mean, God came down. I just remember John Wimber, he, he, would, he would do this great teaching and we'd do this music and de- get excited and then John would go, okay, now we're just going to be quiet. And it was like, come on, man, you're killing God. You had everybody there. Get them going. You know, and John's going, no, I just think the Lord's about to work here. You know, and then, boom, just miracles that start happening. As, as we dialed down, as we just tried to listen, Lord, we can't do anything apart from you. What are you doing here for this person? I remember praying for a lady once who had really bad varicose veins. And uh, we were in New York City with, I was on a team with John Wimber. And this lady, she had horrible, you know, model, like bad veins on her legs. And it was in the, like in November in New York. It was kind of bad weather. And she shows us that. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I've never prayed for that before. That's, that's a hard one. <laughs> and as we're praying for her, I keep looking at her ring finger. And I feel like God asked, wanted me to ask her, is there anything going on in your marriage? But I didn't see a ring on her ring finger. And I'm wrestling with this, and we prayed for her. Nothing's happening. I keep getting this kind of jab in my ribs. I ask her this, and I said, you know, it, it, is there anything going on in your home, you know, that, that, you wanna, that maybe we could pray for? Because I didn't want to be real direct. You know, I didn't know the lady. And she just starts crying. She says, oh, my husband, you know, he, he hates that I'm following Jesus, and he makes my life hell. And, you know, just to come here, I had, you know, he just abused me verbally just so I could come to this meeting. And, and I, you know, I just thought, okay, this is not about her, her varicose veins. We're supposed to pray for her because she's hurting. And so we prayed with her, and you know, God comforted her, and the Spirit just came on her. It was just really sweet. She just needs someone to listen to her, you know, and, and they'd be prayed for. We prayed for her, and then you know, we go, okay, that's good. Thank you for letting us pray for you. And we looked down, and her varicose legs were healed. Like they, just, whoosh, they were just like, whoosh, the skin was just beautiful, perfect. So... Listening for what the Lord's doing is the key. That's, that's what it comes down to. Just, God, what are you doing here? Because God's always doing something. He might not be about what you want, your agenda or their agenda. He may be way more than that. But if you listen, if you learn to begin to discipline yourself to listen, the Lord is always there. And third, we have to persevere. We have to pray for people over and over with persevering faith until the healing comes, or until they tell us to stop praying. And this is the hard part. This is really hard. It's hard to believe that Jesus can do this stuff for anybody with any kind of affliction. It's a little harder to wait and listen. The hardest part is to pray over and over and over until you see something happen. It's just hard. But you know what? When Jesus told the parable, 
of the seed and the sower, he talked about the four kinds of soil. And he said the good soil that brings forth fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold, brings it forth with perseverance. Perseverance. If you pray and you persevere, you're way more likely to see healing than if you just pray once and go, oh, it must not be God's will. That's it. I'm so glad. This was all awkward. I don't like feeling awkward. If you're going to do this, you're going to dial into awkward as a way of life. You're never going to not feel awkward when you pray for people. You just got to accept that. And some of us avoid awkward. Like, awkward is someplace we never want to go. And that's why a lot of times we don't go to this place where we pray for people with effectiveness because we don't want to feel awkward. And we don't want to have all these conflicting experiences inside us. So, Jesus, live with confidence that Jesus can do it. Learn to wait and not pray so anxiously. And then pray and speak to the condition to go over and over and over, whatever God shows you, over and over and over. It's better not to pray for God to do it. It's better to command it to be done. Because you rarely, I don't know if you ever saw Jesus ask the Father to do something. It was always Him doing it. And you see the disciples doing the same thing. The prayers were prayers of command. Walk. Little girl, get up. Lazarus, come forth. Eyes, be opened. Speak. I mean, they're just short prayers. They don't, healing doesn't require a lot of words. It really doesn't. I remember John Wimber praying for this lady who had no optic nerve. And, and, he, and he goes like this. And he's putting his hand towards her. And he just touches her face. And he goes, see. And this lady, like, power hit her. She just stumbles back. This little old lady. And she goes, I can see. I can see. You know, and, and, uh, and he goes, cover your eye. And so it was her right eye that was, she was blind in. So she, she covers her right eye and goes, I can see. I can see. And John goes, no, no. He's thinking, I've addled her, you know. And he goes, no, cover up your good eye. She goes, oh, I can see, I can. How many fingers do I have in my hand? She goes, five. He goes, what color is my hair? She goes, gray and red. And she's crying, you know. Just see. You don't have to add a lot more to it. That's what you want to happen. Whatever you want to happen, that's what you command to happen. So, let's do that. Let's do that. And I, I, wanted, I want to start with Wendy Hutchinson. Yeah, when I was praying this morning, I was thinking of Wendy, and I was thinking, boy, wouldn't it be, I felt like the Lord wanted to heal somebody who had some surgery, and maybe there's somebody else who has, a, has surgery here that you're not recovering well, but Wendy had some surgery in her hands for, I don't know what it is, something that they, they try to fix in your hands. There you go. Medical doctor that I am. Uh, and, but we want to pray for you. And so who wants prayer for something that's, you know, that you, you, it's just a, like this. It's not getting better. Jeff, Jeff, can we pray for you? Jeff Sr.? Can we pray for you, Jeff? Okay. Paula? Anybody else? Dan? Okay, you guys stand up. And, and, uh, and, And we'll start praying for these guys. And then, you know, we can pray for anybody about anything. Uh. Let me, let me say this first. I, want to, I just want to pray a, a quick prayer just for God to empower us you know, to do this. So just, just hold your hands out for a second. Father, 
You've given us authority to release your power, to release gifts that your church would be equipped. And I, I take the authority you've given me. I thank you for it. And I, I pray that, that you'd be honored by this. And that through the name of your son, Jesus, who died and rose again and descended to your right hand, through the name above all names, I pray that your power, the power of the Holy Spirit, that you send in his name, that power of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit that equip us for healing would come and be released in this room on everybody that's here, every single person, however imperfect their faith is. In Jesus' name.